Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts chapter 9. We're resuming our series in Acts, which we will be in some time now for the judging by the rate at which we're going. Um, but if you would pray with me before we begin. All right, Father God, I pray that your word would speak to us this morning, that we could enter in to the message that the Holy Spirit would speak, uh, that it would be transformative to your people, and that it would bring both, both conviction, comfort, and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, one of my favorite books is actually a, a collection of short stories, the Father Brown stories by G.K. Chesterton. Anybody? It's, it's good. It's really good. You should read them. They're super fun. Anyway, the, the whole concept is that Father Brown is this small, dumpy Catholic priest who lived maybe 120 years ago, and he's also like this amateur detective. The story always has him end up uh, in the middle of like a murder mystery of some kind. And, and one of my favorites is called The Chief Mourner of Marne. And what happened is that there's this, this, this little town with a big estate that a marquis lives in, the Marquis of Marne. I don't know how these things work, but uh, the marquis hasn't come out of his house for some decades now after he killed his best friend in a duel, right? In one of those old-fashioned, I slap you across the face, then somebody's got to go. Um, one of those sorts of things. And, and uh, you know, the, the word on the street is, is that, you know, he's, he's got religious melancholia, that there's priests at his house that are making him feel guilty about it, and so he's kind of imprisoned himself inside of his estate. And, and there's a group of people that knew him back in the day that said, you know, he needs to be forgiven. He needs to let this go. It was a fair fight. It was tragic, but it was a duel. These things happen. And Father Brown, who's among them, doesn't seem to think that's such a good idea. And this group of people starts laying into Father Brown saying, well, what kind of Christian are you? You know, aren't you guys supposed to be all about the love that pardons all? Fast forward, they decide they're going to go up to this estate. They're going to knock on the door and say, Marquis of Marne, we know what you did. You know, you killed your best friend, but let it go. Forgive yourself. It was a duel. It was a fair fight, so on and so forth. You know, come back to the land of living. But when they come up to the estate, who comes out but little Father Brown? And he says, I have permission to tell you what actually happened on the day of the duel. You see, the Marquis didn't actually kill his best friend. The best friend, who was poor while the Marquis was rich, faked being shot by the Marquis. And then when the Marquis ran over in remorse to, to comfort his friend to see how he was wounded, he rolled over with his own pistol and shot him through the body and killed the real Marquis, assumed his identity because he wanted his money. And that is why he has never come out. And he says, and since you guys are so charitable, you can go ahead and be reconciled to him now. And then I'll just read to you because it's so good. The general is one of the group. He says, hang it all if you think I'm going to be reconciled to a filthy viper like that. I tell you, I wouldn't say a word to save him from, from hell. I said I could pardon a regular decent duel, but of all the treacherous assassins. And another one says, I wouldn't touch him with a barge pole myself. And there's a limit to human charity, said Lady Outram. There is, said Father Brown dryly. That is the real difference between human charity and Christian charity. You must forgive me if I was not altogether crushed by your contempt for my uncharitableness. uncharitableness. 
For it seems to me that you only pardon the sins that you don't think really sinful. You only forgive criminals when they commit what you don't regard as crimes. You forgive because there isn't anything to be forgiven. And hang it all, Mallow, said Mallow. You don't expect us to be able to pardon a vile thing like that. He says, no, but we priests have to be able to pardon it. We have to touch such men, not with a barge pole, but with a benediction. We have to say the word that will save them from hell. I feel like that captures something so true about us and about our culture. We forgive when there's nothing to be forgiven. We pardon what we don't consider crimes. Excuses are everywhere, but grace is not. I mean, we see this when, you know, some high-profile person does something and, and, you know, they'll talk about it on the radio or whatever. Should they be forgiven? Well, you have to understand how they grew up. And if you understood their culture, you understood the hard times they went through, you'd see, right, have a little mercy. So it's, it's an excuse. It's not grace. And then watch when someone does something that's truly horrible and truly indefensible. I'm thinking of... Uh, you know, Kevin Spacey, where has he been? He did something truly bad, something for which there's no defense. He still won't come out. He's still not forgiven, right? We throw him under the, under the biggest bus we can. When someone truly wrongs us, when we're betrayed by somebody, and you know there's no real excuse, like we can tend to excuse it. I, I think, I think um, you know, especially with, with family members that wrong us. Oh, well, they have problems of their own and they're just acting out. And we excuse it, but we don't forgive it. It's not actual grace. And then when it comes to people that we perceive as some sort of enemy or opponent, well, grace goes out the window. Totally, doesn't it? You know, when, when there's somebody, and I'm not making light of this stuff, what, I'll tell you mine. Cards on the table. Guy who worked for the Trump administration, Stephen Miller. He's the architect of some of the cruelest policies to immigrants that, that, you, that you could think of. Right? All the zero tolerance, family separation, awful stuff, indefensible stuff. And I've murdered him in my heart. And we say, well, that's okay. He deserves it. He's done evil. And he has. That's true. He does probably deserve something like that. He does deserve some comeuppance, some accountability. But the very definition of grace is not getting what you deserve. It's getting something far better, isn't it? How are we supposed to respond, not to people who are excusable, to, but to people who truly deserve judgment? Well, I think few people could, could compete with a guy named Saul when we talk about someone who deserves judgment and the wrath of God. Saul we've seen in the book of Acts two times before chapter 9. The first time was at the martyrdom of Stephen. He was standing there watching everybody's cloaks. You know, hey, leave your keys with me. You need to throw rocks at someone until they die. And he was, he was giving approval to it. The next time we see him is in the very next chapter. He, he leads the first formal persecution against the church. He, he gets a goon squad together. It says that he entered into house after house and dragged Christian men and women off to prison and then 
execution. And when we see him here at the, at the open of chapter 9, he's up to much the same thing. Look with me at Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Damascus. So the same thing he was doing in Jerusalem, now he wants to expand outside of Judea. So he goes, he, you have to understand that he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees and the scribes form one group in, in, in the first century uh, um, Jewish world. These were people who were strict observers, not just of the Old Testament, but of kind of the commentary on the Old Testament, the Talmud. And these, these were the sticklers for the law, right? And they were ferociously nationalistic. They wanted the Jewish homeland back, and they would have nothing to do with non-Jews. Wouldn't speak to them, wouldn't go in their houses, right? Like, like spitting hatred sort of thing. So that's who this guy is. And now he's got his black bag squad at his back. He's gone to his mortal enemy, the high priest. The priests and the Pharisees hated each other, but he wanted it to be legal. He wanted to have the backing of the state so that he can go and continue to, pers to uh, persecute the church. One might say, this is a rising star in the, in the Pharisaical world. He's making a name for himself. He's becoming famously zealous for the traditions. But a funny thing happens in verse 3. Look with me. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly heaven shone around him. Now, this light from heaven, Saul, who would have known his Old Testament, knows that this is what happens when the glory of the Lord shows up, a blinding light. This could be good. This could be, you know, like, hey, God's favor's on you. And, and he does what everybody does when God's glory shows up. He hits the deck. Verse 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, I'm, it says it in Aramaic, actually. It doesn't make its way into English. Okay, he's saying his name. Prophets get their name said twice sometime. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Glory of God. This is going well. Why are you persecuting me? That's unexpected. So the glory of the Lord shows up and doesn't congratulate him. It does what? Says, you're against me. That's a shocker for him. This is a guy who was sure he was doing God a favor. And he finds out instead that persecuting this little group of followers of Jesus is actually persecuting God himself. And then it goes further. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Uh-oh. Jesus, who he considered to be a seditionist, someone who was anti uh, his people, someone who was corrupting his faith, is actually on God's side. And he finds out that he's opposed to God. And now we see Jesus humble Saul. Look at verse 6. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. This guy who had a plan, who had the world by the neck, he's being told what to do now. You wait for further orders, okay? Buddy, can you do that? 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now that seeing no one means Saul saw someone, right? So he, he, he had a vision of some kind. Jesus, the risen Christ, appeared to Saul. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Now, this is a message from God that Saul would have understood. You see, there's a, a passage in the book of Deuteronomy, which Saul would have known, that, set, that tells the people if they walk away from God, they will be blind at midday. This striking blind physically is a message to Saul that you are blind spiritually. Saul rose from the ground. Oh, yeah, I just read that part. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So everything changed in a moment. One moment he's leading the goon squad, letters in pocket, rising star, swagon. Next moment he's brought to the ground. He gets up blind. His whole world is turned upside down. Now, if you know this story, forget that you know it. Rem try and hear it how the first hearer would have heard it. What's happening? This looks like comeuppance, doesn't it? This is getting good. All right. The enemy, the villain is going to get his. God's going to deal with him, isn't he? What's going to happen next? You don't get to find out. We literally get a cliffhanger. There's a scene cut. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Still unclear what God's intentions are, but Ananias is understanding what's going on in verse 12. He has seen in a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. So this is, gives you an idea. Saul's reputation is spreading through, the, through the, the Jewish world, right? The Christians of Damascus are afraid of him. In verse 14, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So he's like, and I was like, are you sure, God? This is the, you really want me to do this? He's not saying no, but he's saying, You're, you know about this guy Saul, right? I mean, try and put this in terms that we're more familiar with. This is like, this is like telling a, a, a Jew in 1942, Heinrich Himmler is over at this house. He's the head of the, the SS. Why don't you go there? He's waiting for you. It's like, I know he is. That's why I don't want to go there. Right? Look what happens next. God explains, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen interest, instrument of mine to what? Carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Twist! What? Hang on. Put that together. Saul, enemy of the faith, the greatest enemy of the faith at this time, hated Gentiles, is going to do what? 
carry the gospel to Gentiles. Isn't that just so God? Isn't that just like, yeah, I've read the Bible a couple times. God seems to do stuff like, like that. And for those of you who don't know, Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. He writes a chunk of the New Testament. He plants churches throughout the known world. He goes all the way. He goes to prison. He gets nearly killed a few times. He goes through hardship. And eventually, tradition tells us, to a cross himself. What does this tell us? If Saul can become Paul, if Saul not only becomes part of the church, but its greatest champion, it means that no one is beyond God's grace. No one is beyond God's grace. I don't care what it is you can think of. They have not committed worse crimes against God than Saul. And if Saul is within God's grace, then everyone is. No one is beyond God's grace. As a quick aside, the, the change, the conversion of Saul to Paul is actually very compelling historical evidence. This, this is one that skeptical scholars have a hard time with. And, and if you read their stuff, they're actually pretty honest about it because the evidence is just very overwhelming that there was a Saul who was a persecutor of the church and a Jewish nationalist who became Paul. Right? And there's no one, not even the most skeptical of scholars, question that he was a real person who actually changed from one to the other. The, 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 they try and escape the miraculous nature of this conversion and how it actually shows there's a risen Christ. Like, that's a good explanation, don't you think? Like, hey, the risen Christ appeared to this guy, struck him blind, and then healed him and sent him off. Right? That's a, that, that explains it. But they, they go for other explanations, like it was a power move that Saul saw this growing Christian community and said, you know, I bet you I can take over. And it was like this cynical lie he made up because uh, he was just interested in power. I'm not kidding. This is in the literature. What do you guys think of that? So, like, he was a rising star in a, in a group of people that mattered, and he's going to jump ship and go to the persecuted people for power? Doesn't seem to add up, does it? The other one is that he had some sort of stroke or aneurysm and, and hallucinated the risen Christ. Why he would hallucinate the risen Christ, I don't know. Uh, but they say, yeah, you know, and, and some of the scholars even say, well, God used the aneurysm. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? You gotta do something to escape from, you know, the truth here. Um, that's a heck of an aneurysm that it would strike you blind only for three days until someone lays hands on you and prays for you. That's a heck of a coinkadink. Um, so, no, the, 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 ex, the attempted explanations don't cover the historical evidence and data. So they're not very good explanations, right? But that is to the side. I just wanted to go into that real quick for people who are nerdy, which is all of you. You're all nerds. <laughs> but... The message here is that no one's beyond God's grace. And so how does that mean God's people are supposed to respond even to their persecutor, even to their worst enemy? Look at what, look at what Ananias does in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, that's guts, and laying his hands on him, he said, look, just real quick, Ananias not only goes to the house of his worst enemy, 
who has dragged off this dude's family in Christ to prison and death and plans to do the same thing to him and perhaps his wife, perhaps his kids, right? He goes in and doesn't just perfunctorily carry it out. What does he do? He touches him. And look at what he says. He says, Brother Saul. He calls him brother. He welcomes him as family. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, but as soon as Paul is, you know, sighted and strengthened and filled with the Spirit, he starts preaching and gets persecuted and flees Damascus, goes to Jerusalem. The other disciples won't receive him because he's Saul, and they're afraid, and they don't believe that it's genuine. But then Barnabas, who appears later in the book of Acts, actually goes and vouches for him, actually receives him as a brother. If no one is beyond God's grace, it means that we must treat people with the grace of God. Not an excuse, not explaining away, but when someone does something truly wrong and indefensible, that we don't give them what they deserve, we give them the grace of God. What would God give us if we all got what we deserve? Mm -hmm. What did God give us instead? Did he treat us as our lives deserve? No. He gave us Jesus. He goes on a rescue mission for us, crossing worlds, going to a cross, and rising again, calling you and me to be in relationship with him. Not because we're good, but in spite of our evil. He didn't give us what, he, what we deserve. He gave us his grace. Now, does that mean that because of God's grace, there's no such thing as legal and social accountability? No, it doesn't mean that. Does that mean there's no, no you know, you're not allowed self-defense, you know, an army attacks you. You're like, grace of God. Like, no, you can defend um, does that mean never calling evil evil? You just want to be nice, and, and right, like you never name something evil. It doesn't mean that. It means that you could do all those things and still respond with God's grace to someone. When you want to repay someone for their sin against you, you're going to drag their name through the mud behind their back. You, they deserve it. They, you're just saying what they did. You're going to repay their, their wrong against you with the cold shoulder? Maybe open condemnation? Okay, they might deserve it, that's true. But no one is beyond God's grace. And when we treat people as we say they deserve, we're not acting out of God's grace. When you run across someone online who's going on some unhinged rant that is really, truly offensive to you and something you hold dear, man, it would feel great to give them both barrels. You see a flaw in their logic, you could really humiliate them online, couldn't you? Right? Or at least blast back, look, clap back to use the terminology. 
It would feel great. When you are in position to make someone pay for their sin, we have to check ourselves. Also, when we're trying to excuse someone, say it's not their fault, they, it's because of this. If they only, right? No, it's to call evil, evil. And then not pay someone back for it. To not treat people as they deserve, but to treat people far better. No one is beyond God's grace. We must treat people with God's grace. I think there have been few bigger villains in American history than governor of Alabama in the 1960s, George Wallace. Right? He appears in movies. He's, he's the He's the vile fiend of the, of the movies, rightfully so. You know who George Wallace is. Segregation yesterday, segregation now, segregation forever, George Wallace. Fire hoses and German shepherds, George Wallace. Sending the National Guard to attack the marchers at Edmund Pettus, George Wallace. No doubt, the guy deserves all kinds of condemnation. What he did was wicked. It was opposed to the kingdom of God and did not treat the image of God and others with dignity at all. He was running for president, actually, in 1972 on the Democratic ticket. Let that sink in. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was different back then. And while he was on the campaign trail, you know, running on a pro-segregation platform, he was on a campaign stop in Maryland. And he was shot five times through the chest at close range. It didn't look like he was going to live. And if he did live, he certainly wasn't going to ever walk again. He was paralyzed from the waist down. And you can imagine his enemies out there, I would say, yeah, that's probably deserved. This guy killed people, or he was the cause of their death and suffering and oppression and everything else. A lot of people would have agreed with you at that time. But the funny thing is, is there was a, someone else running for the Democratic nomination, in 1972, it was, uh, it was Shirley Chisholm. You guys know Shirley Chisholm? Uh, for first African-American woman in Congress, Shirley Chisholm. Unbought and unbossed Shirley Chisholm, she's awesome. And she's a follower of Jesus. And so she left the campaign trail at a key time, got on a plane to Maryland, and went to visit George Wallace in the hospital. And her supporters and the nation and the pundits, there was outcry. What are you doing? Of all people, you know, the most progressive uh, uh, candidate on the platform going to visit her mortal enemy, someone who stands in the way of everything she holds dear, who has persecuted her people. She walked into his hospital room, and George Wallace looked up at her, all five foot nothing of her, and he couldn't believe his eyes. From his bed, he's like, Shirley Chisholm, is that you? And she said, yes, George, it's me. And George Wallace started tearing up. And he says, why would you come and see me? And she said, because no one deserves what you got. And she sat down and just talked with him. The two became friends that day in fact, and were forever after. And shortly after this, George Wallace came to know Jesus. And though he would never walk again, he went into any place 
that would have him, African-American churches especially, and begged forgiveness for what he had done. Did he deserve condemnation? Yeah. Did Shirley Chisholm give it to him? No. No one is beyond God's grace. We need to treat people with God's grace. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would deepen the gospel in our community. That we would, we would not be those whose charity is of a nature that we forgive because there's nothing to forgive. But that we would grasp the gospel of Jesus on such a deep level that we would be those who could forgive and not take revenge on those whose crimes are truly indefensible. That we would not reject or cast away, but that we would receive and forgive. Turn us into people who put your grace into the world. In Jesus' name, amen.